Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are continuing our study in Colossians, so if you'll be finding the second chapter, we'll start in verse 8 here in a few moments, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. As you well know, the world is changing, our country is changing, our lives are changing at breakneck speed, and it's just not the same as it used to be. I remember when I was a boy, a lot of my growing up years were done in a a small town sort of atmosphere. And uh, we would, uh, there was multiple guys that around my age in the neighborhood and surrounding neighborhoods, and we would be gone most of the day. I mean, we would get up in the mornings and we would ride our bikes all over town and meet up with various people and uh, play different games and activities. And as long as we showed up for supper on time, our folks really didn't care. They didn't track us down. There was no way to track us down. We didn't have cell phones that they could call and check in on us. Uh, They didn't seem to be worried about us. In fact, looking back, I guess they probably enjoyed the peace and quiet while we were gone from the house. But you can't do that anymore. Today, one of our greatest fears as parents is to discover that our child has been abducted. Even though we realize that the odds are very small, we hear about it enough to realize that it is actually a possibility, and so we want to have our children in our sights at all time. You've all experienced just that momentary brief time when you lose sight of a child in Walmart or some other place, and immediately that fear rises that something has happened. And even if it's only 15 seconds or so before you see them again, that fear is very real. And so we are constantly on guard, wanting to know where our children are at all times and as best we can have our eyes on them. Of course, now we've got the tracking capability on their cell phones. And so we can look it up at any time and see exactly where they are. As a nation, we have an Amber Alert system now that all of us can immediately be notified when a child in our area has been abducted and we can get all of the necessary information so that we can be on the lookout along with everyone else for the car, for the make and model, the license plate, the person they were last seen with, and of course the picture of the child, him or herself. The point of all of this is to make us aware so that we are observant, so that we look and see, and ultimately that we can help. What I want to talk to you this morning is not about how you can protect your child physically, but I do want to make you aware of the fact that even as there are physical abductions, there are also spiritual counterparts to that. That is, Paul is making us aware in the second chapter of Colossians that we need to be on the lookout. We need to be aware that it is possible to be abducted spiritually. And if, as we claim, the soul is our greatest, the greatest part of our lives, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? then we need to be on guard spiritually for our spirits and for our souls that we not be taken captive by those who would seek to lead us astray. I'm going to tell you at the outset that the passage of Scripture we are looking at this morning is is a bit difficult. 
And I'm not going to have the time to adequately explain everything that we see here. Paul gives us at least five metaphors. And the difficulty lies in the fact that he strings them one after another. And also that we might be tempted to take something literally that was meant as a metaphor. Our English teachers told us not to mix our metaphors. Well, Paul didn't get that advice. And so he just strings all of these things together. And sometimes it's difficult to follow. But all of it comes back to this. There are consequences to the cross. That is, there are ramifications to the cross of Jesus Christ for every believer. And the more we are aware of these things, the more we immerse ourselves in what the cross means for us, the less these other teachings will tempt us. So the way to make sure that we're not spiritually kidnapped is to beware, and much of being aware is that we know what Christ has done for us. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and evil deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling out or by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them or trying over them in him. I told you it's a bit confusing. Sometimes it's just confusing to read, but it's certainly hard to follow the, the trail here. So I need you to stay with me this morning as we look at five consequences of the cross, all of them pointing to who we are and what we have in Christ. And the better we understand that, the less anything else is going to be appealing. So number one, Paul tells us that you and I as believers, and clearly all of this is focused on the believer this morning, we are complete in Christ. You may remember last time we talked about the fact that Paul had started this chapter by acknowledging the struggle. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He wanted them to know that their faith was a continual battle for him because he wanted to see them growing in their faith. In chapter 1, they had begun well. He commended them for that. But beginning well is only the first step of the process. He wanted to see them continue on in their walk with Christ. And so what we're looking at this morning is really a continuation of all of that, though it's going to be couched in the negative terms. That is, these verses and the ones that we'll look at next week are considered by many to be the very heart of the letter. There is a danger out there, a danger that we began looking at last week. 
And that danger needs to be seen and observed and fought against. If they are going to continue in their doctrinal purity and that doctrinal purity leading to a practical lifestyle that is pleasing to Christ. So in these verses, Paul begins with the words, see to it, verse 8. It's really not as strong as it ought to be in the ESV from which I just read. It's really stronger than that. It's more like beware, be on guard, watch out. And if we have this warning here, which clearly we do, then there is something for which we need to be on the lookout. Something, if ignored, will bring about disastrous results. And he says that's something that we are to be on the lookout for is someone who desires to take us captive. That word captive is only found here in all of the Bible. It is found outside of the Bible in first century Greek. It is found uh, in a case where um, a priest's daughter was kidnapped and taken into slavery. And it's found of soldiers who plunder the prey from their enemies. They take the, the spoils of war. So the idea here is to carry someone away from the truth of the gospel into a slavery of error, obviously not physically here, but spiritually. And Paul refers to all of this as being empty. In other words, you have to look behind all of the charismatic speech and the flashy facade, and you begin to realize that they are teaching the tradition of men, not the person of Christ. Again, as we've said before, the Colossians had begun on solid theological ground, but they were in danger of being deceived, and that is what Paul is guarding against. No Christian ever sets out to be deceived. I don't imagine that you are going to say to yourself, well, I think over the course of the next year, what I want to do is really be deceived in my faith. No one wants that. But it subtly does happen, and that is why we must protect ourselves against it. And one of the ways we do that is to understand that we are complete in Christ. Now, the reason this is so difficult sometimes is because those who seek to deceive us are hard to recognize. False teachers who are overtly immoral or unethical are easy to spot. But those who cl come claiming Scripture or quoting Scripture and look very much like us are much more difficult to discern. And that's why growing in Christ is so important. That is why understanding who we are in our relationship with God is such an offensive, offensive weapon when it comes to guarding against deception. They came with their fine-sounding fine arguments, which call, Paul, Paul calls philosophy. Can't get the words out this morning. Now, philosophy in his mind is not a bad term. He's not saying there's something wrong with all philosophy. In fact, the word philosophy here has a broader meaning than what it does in our day. It basically means any system of thought. So Christianity is a philosophy. That is, it makes claims on how we live our lives and how we are to be guided in living those lives. So philosophy in and of itself is not a bad term, but the philosophy here, he goes on to say, is empty and deceitful, and it is according to the traditions of men, which means it is not according to God. That's what makes it bad. And you understand that Jesus often argued with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, 
And one of the things he often accused them of is paying more attention to the traditions of men than the Word of God. Now, here again, there's nothing wrong with tradition. In fact, we might bemoan the fact that so much of tradition has been torn down. So there's nothing wrong with tradition. However, we must not base our faith on tradition. Most cults have tradition. They have things that have gone on for many years, and they claim that those things are accurate. But we, of course, know that they are not. But we need to understand that the tradition of men, in this case, comes from the elementary principles or spirits. Look at, look at that verse again in verse 6. According to human tradition, and the next phrase, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That word elemental spirits is one of the hardest New Testament words to accurately interpret. It can mean one of three things. It can refer to the components of the universe, that is air, earth, fire, and water. And in the early centuries, those elements were often associated with, with gods. Secondly, it can refer to the essential principles of an area of study. Or thirdly, it can refer to spiritual beings, which is the way most people take it here, even though there's no evidence that it was used that way prior to the third century. So it's a very difficult word, but I do think Paul is referring to the fact here that uh, they were emphasizing spiritual beings more than they should, and that this was very appealing. And that's why Paul takes the opportunity here to remind them of the sufficiency of Christ. If we realize, even as we sung about a few moments ago, that all we need is Christ, and therefore we have all that we need, then there will be no temptation to embrace other things, whether those things are people or other kinds of teaching. And that is why I'm starting with reminding you that you are complete in Christ. Look at verse 9. It's almost an exact restatement of what we saw in chapter 1 and verse 19, where the idea here is that Jesus is completely God. He possesses all of the attributes, all of the qualities of God, because he is in fact God, and this God is intimately related to you and to me. And so several times in this passage, we see the phrase, in him. Over and over again, verse 9, in him, verse 10, in him, verse 11, in him, and similar phrases to that. It's Paul's way of emphasizing that our relationship with Jesus is complete. We are in him and he is in us. Jesus is fully God, even though in bodily form. Jesus indwells the believers abiding in him, even as we abide in him. And the natural conclusion is that we are complete in him. Now, by complete, he doesn't mean that we are perfect. He simply means that we have everything we need. Christ is sufficient. I said this last week. He is sufficient for our salvation. That is, he is powerful enough to save us. But he is also sufficient for our sanctification. That is, in him we have everything we need to walk with him as we saw last week. And we need to be reminded of that. Because if we don't know that, we will be in danger of fading away. How can I have fullness of life? We don't often phrase it that way, but we think it. What do I need to experience fullness of life? Nothing but what you already have, and that is Jesus Christ. You and I have everything necessary for fullness of life. We need nothing more. Secondly, 
The second consequence that we need to be reminded of is that we are buried with Christ. We see this in verses 11 and 12. Now, the significance of what takes place in baptism is often underestimated. In fact, many people don't even know what baptism means. I talk with children a lot who are potentially going to come forward in order to be baptized. They say they're saved and they want to be baptized. And so I always go over with them what baptism means. And sometimes they don't quite understand that it is symbolic. That is, it is a representation of what has taken place in your heart. There is this internal reality of Christ saving us. And then we publicly profess that through the waters of baptism, identifying in the burial of Christ. And ultimately, as we'll see in a moment, identifying with the resurrection of Christ. But of course, the debates concerning baptism goes well beyond whether we should immerse or sprinkle. Some denominations teach what is called baptismal regeneration. That's a big term, which simply means that baptism in part is used by God to save you. Now, we would say that that is not the case because we are saved by grace through faith without any mixture of works, and baptism, if it saves, would be a work. That is something you have to do in order to be saved. So we deny baptismal regeneration. Roman Catholics teach that baptism cleanses the soul from sin and places the recipient in a state of grace, which then makes salvation possible which is why Catholic priests will sprinkle infants in the hospital who are in danger of dying so that in their belief, they are then open to the possibility of that infant being saved. We, on the other hand, teach what we call believer's baptism. That is, we believe that only professing believers, that is, you have to come to a place in your life where you understand what sin is and your need to repent of it and that it is Christ who saves you and you place your faith and trust in him. It is only a believer who then is baptized. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention starts not this week, but next week. And when we gather in Nashville next week, there's going to be a lot of talk about our drop in membership and about our drop in baptisms. And they're going to urge us, no doubt, to refocus our efforts on evangelism so that we can see the numbers of baptisms rise again. And no doubt we need to do that. But here's the danger. The danger is that if we focus on a number of baptisms and we make that our goal, as worthy of a goal as that is, subtly we might be tempted to lower the standards for who it is we baptize so that we can baptize more people and feel better about ourselves, that we get to the point where we're not sure we're really baptizing believers, merely filling the church then with more professing believers who don't really possess salvation and that is certainly not what we need so we are all for baptism but we want to make sure the person who is baptized has genuinely repented of their sins and by faith trusted in christ because the bible whether we're talking about circumcision or whether we're talking about baptism and again paul mixes these two things up here i don't mean he gets it wrong i just mean he's, he's using both of those terms here and whether we're talking about circumcision or baptism the all the the purpose has always been about the heart I mean, even in the Old Testament, you know how important circumcision was for the Jews. It was the identifying mark that they were the covenant people of God. And God commanded that the males be circumcised. But even as far back as Moses, Moses said God has always been concerned, not merely with the physical circumcision, but with a circumcision of heart. And that is what baptism represents as well. Baptized by immersion, 
because we believe that it's the best way to picture the reality of what we're talking about here. You and I are complete in Christ, but we are also buried with Christ, and that is why we immerse, because we say when we go down in the water, we are buried with Jesus by baptism unto death. Very similar to what Paul says here, but taking it from another passage of Scripture. We are identifying with the death of Jesus Christ, saying to ourselves and all those who are present that we too have died to our old way of life and we no longer want to live that way. In fact, we want to go beyond that and that brings us to our third point. Not only are we buried with Christ, but it goes next that we are raised with Christ as well. Verse 13. These things can effectively protect us from the deceivers, knowing that we've been buried with Christ and now that we've been raised with Christ. I'm sure you've read the accounts of near-death experiences from people. They'll say they've seen a bright light that they were urged to come to, but then for whatever reason they're sent back and they're often given instructions on what they're to do on earth for some reason. Whatever you may believe about these things, and I could go on about it for quite some time here, these people generally come back with a renewed purpose or focus in their lives. That is, they believe they were left here for a reason, for a purpose, and now they want to make sure they fulfill that purpose. I was talking with a pastor friend of mine on the phone this week about the issues coming up in the Southern Baptist Convention, and there are many this year. And this particular pastor friend of mine over the last five years or so did indeed not have a near-death experience in the way that you would, you would think, but I'm telling you, he, he had a very serious illness that the prognosis was the likelihood that he was going to die. Now, he did not, but he said to me, without any prompting on my part, he said to me, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen death. I, I face death in my life, and as a result, I don't want to focus on all those peripheral issues that are going to come up. I want to make sure my focus, and in whatever number of years I have left in ministry, I want to make sure my focus is the gospel. He had a renewed purpose, a renewed, a renewed mission in life because he had had a, not a near-death experience in the fact that he had seen everything, but a near-death experience in the sense that, that he had almost died or he had been given a, a death sentence. Most of us probably have not had that. But I'll tell you what we have had. We've had not a near-death experience, but we have had a death experience. We have been buried with Jesus by baptism unto death and raised to walk in newness of life. And the reality of this experience should protect us from going astray. Anytime you feel tempted to doubt the sufficiency of Christ and wonder if there is some other spiritual experience you need, something deeper or more valuable, you need to remember that you've been dead to your sins and made alive in Christ. And if he has the power to transform you from spiritual death to spiritual life, can you honestly doubt he is sufficient for all things? Verse 13 tells us that prior to salvation, we were dead. Not physically, but spiritually. We were dead to the things of God, going through life only to satisfy ourselves and our sinful nature. And a dead man cannot bring himself to life. So we do not initiate spiritual life. We were made alive together with Christ. Just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead physically, we have been resurrected from the dead spiritually. And this should bring us renewed purpose and focus in life. That is what salvation is all about. We come out of the waters of baptism ready and empowered to live in a new way, to walk faithfully with Jesus. You know we talk about the resurrection every year around Easter or on Easter. 
He is risen, we say, and because of our belief in the fact that he is resurrected, we then talk about our future resurrection. We talk about the fact that because he lives, we will conquer death as well. And it's a wonderful promise, and it's a great hope that because Christ has conquered the grave, the grave is not the end, death is not the final chapter for us, but we will be resurrected as well. But what we might miss is not just the promise of a future resurrection, but the reality of a present resurrection. Notice here that he's talking in present tense terms. My resurrection is not just future, nor is yours, it is now. I have already been resurrected. I have been raised spiritually from death to life, and so have you, and so has every believer. And when we understand that, we know that we don't have to embrace some sort of deceptive trick of the false teachers. I mean, why fall for such things when Christ has already raised us from the dead? You are complete in Christ. You are buried with Christ, but you didn't stay there. You were raised by Christ. And then fourthly, we see that we are forgiven by Christ. Another wonderful truth emphasized by Paul here, this time in the latter half of verse 13 and verse 14. Your resurrection with Christ means that you've been forgiven of your sins. Because if you are not forgiven of your sins, then you do not have new life. You've not been made alive in Christ. But uh, if you have been, you are alive with him. I know some of us think sometimes that forgiveness of sins is difficult to understand and difficult to comprehend. We tend to think that, sure, God forgives us of most of our sins, but some of us have that long-standing guilt or, or idea that there's just a few things I've done that, that maybe God just can't simply forgive. And so we carry the guilt and burden of these past transgressions, hoping to somehow atone for them ourselves. And so we throw ourselves into religious service or, or social justice of some sort. And I'm all for religious commitment and I'm all for social justice rightly understood. But even those things, as much as we might be involved in them, cannot atone for our sins. But that's okay because our sins are already atoned for. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we might live in freedom Yes, we still obey, and yes, we still follow him, but not out of a desire to gain acceptance because we've already been accepted. We've already been buried and raised and forgiven of our sins. And he gives us two wonderful metaphors here to help us understand this. Verse 14, the ESV says, Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What does that mean? In all likelihood, it means that the law testified against us. It set a high standard. And it said, you and I have not attained that standard. And because of that, we have an IOU. You know what that is. We were in debt. We owed God a debt that we could not satisfy, a debt that we could not pay. And if you look at the law, in fact, if we just even minimize the law to the Ten Commandments and and rightly understand the Ten Commandments as, as Jesus interpreted them in the New Testament, you come to quickly understand that, yes, your debt is large. And yet, the Bible says Jesus forgave us of those sins. He wiped the slate clean. When you go to Sunday school in a moment, Some of your teachers may use those white erase boards. You teachers in the school systems use those white erase boards. And so if you use the right kind of pen, that's the key, use the right kind of pen, 
You can write whatever you want to on that board and then erase it and use it again. Now, that's not the greatest technology in the world, so there, there's usually some blurred reminder of what used to be there. There's usually a, a faint hint of, of what you wrote last week when you start writing something this week. But the point is it can be wiped clean so that something else can be put there. And that's what Paul is saying here when it comes to our relationship with Christ. The forgiveness of sins means he's wiped clean the slate of debt that you had with him. There are no smudges. There are no faint reminders left behind. It has all disappeared. And then the second picture, he says here, Jesus nailed it to the cross. I think Paul is picking up here the Roman custom, as you are aware of from the crucifixion accounts, of nailing the charge above the uh, person that was condemned. And that's why they wrote of Jesus that he was king of the Jews. <clears throat> and Paul takes this custom and applies it to our sin. Your sins and the charges against you were nailed to the cross, never to be brought up again. Once a prisoner was executed for the crime, the debt was satisfied, the law was satisfied, and the same is true spiritually. So there is now no outstanding debt because he has paid the debt on your behalf. Which is why the hymn writer can say, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. Yet another reason why we know, have no need to be deceived by others who would tell us that we need something more. How can we need something more when we're complete in Christ? We've been buried with him. We've been raised with him, and we've been forgiven of our sins. And then lastly, verse 15, we are victorious with Christ. Verse 15 is also a difficult verse, but that's the gist of it. Christ is victorious. And because Christ is victorious, and again, we are in him and he is in us, because Christ is victorious, we will be victorious as well. As I said earlier, at least part of the problem in Colossae was an overemphasis on spiritual beings, an overemphasis that we still see today from time to time, where people are always talking about a demon behind this and behind that. And I'm not saying demons aren't real. I think they are. But they've already been conquered by Christ, and they are not to be our focus. He has won the victory when he stretched out on the cross. And what looked like a, a great tragedy became a great victory. The cross looked like a crushing defeat, but the empty tomb proclaimed a public victory. The imagery here is, is of a king who has gone out to battle and won the victory. And now they, they've come back. And when they come back home, there is this parade, there is this procession where they march the, the weapons that they've confiscated from the battle through the town where they march the, the captives that they've, uh, captive, uh, that they've stolen or gotten from the battle. They take the king who's no longer in his royal robes. He's, he's had those things taken off, and he's marched through the city publicly humiliating him. I find it interesting that uh, the phrase there, put him to open shame, that word's only found one other time in all of the New Testament. And you know where it's found? In the story of Joseph and Mary, where Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant 
And it says there, he doesn't want to publicly disgrace her, and so he tends to put her away quietly. That's the same word we find here. Joseph did not want to publicly humiliate Mary. But here we find Christ publicly humiliating uh, those whom he has overcome, those who he has been victorious uh, about, and marching him through an open shame. He is victorious, and as a result, we are too. I'll be real honest with you, people are easy to fool. It shouldn't be the case, especially in an age where we have so much information at our disposal. But people are just easily fooled. Listen to this quote. The masses have little time to think, and how incredible is the willingness of modern men to believe. You know who said that? The masses have little time to think, and how incredible it is that they want to believe. That was said by Adolf Hitler. And he used that mindset to bring about the deaths of millions of people. He understood that people could be manipulated and taught something else. And spiritually, we need to understand that same truth, which is why Peter says, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We need to understand that the battle is real. And that is why we have these these five things here, these consequences of the cross that Paul reminds us of is true of every believer. Now, yesterday, I have to admit that I went out to lunch, and I ate way more than I should have. I felt bad the rest of the day. In fact, I I haven't eaten anything since lunch yesterday because I was so full, I, I haven't gotten hungry yet. Now, I probably will in a few moments, but I haven't yet. I was so full Nothing sounded good. I mean, if you just said, I'll grill you a steak, I'd have said, man, I'm just too full. I'm satisfied. I do not need anything else. No matter how good it might be, I don't need anything else. Spiritually speaking, that's what we need to see in our relationship with Christ. That we are full. We are satisfied. We have everything we need in Christ. Therefore, nothing else is even appealing. On the other hand, when you're hungry, or what's that commercial where it calls it, hangry? When you're hungry, a lot of stuff looks appealing. When you're hungry, a lot of different types of food sounds good. We need to make sure spiritually that we're full, that we're satisfied in Christ, that we realize we have everything we need in him for fullness of life, and therefore, nothing else is even remotely appealing. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word and the opportunity we've had to gather and to uh, study it. We pray that you would remind us again and again that there is no reason for us to be deceived by false teaching or false teachers. There is no higher life. There is no spiritual experience beyond Christ that we need. It's not Christ plus something else. It is Christ and Christ alone. And I pray that you would help us to see this morning that we are complete in you, that we are full, we are satisfied. We need nothing nor no one else because you have given us everything we need in our relationship with Jesus. For that, we're grateful. And may we not stray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.